We love Ascent Nutrition. Ascent Nutrition was founded by my good friend Lance Shuttler, and it's making a huge difference in this community. They have a new product that is sweeping the nation, pine pollen. Last year, several prominent scientists started speaking out about the power of pine trees and the benefits they can offer us. Ascent Nutrition offers raw, wild-crafted pine pollen. Pine pollen contains 200 nutrients in it, making it a true superfood. It's nature's highest source of phytohormones, which support hormone and libido health for men and women. Pine pollen also supports brain health, detoxification, as well as many facets of cardiovascular health. Their pine pollen is selling fast. It's literally flying off the shelves. Ascent Nutrition is on a mission of offering deeply transformative and helpful nutrients to as many people as possible to help bring about a great collective shift in human consciousness and human health. To order your pine pollen supply and check out everything Ascent Nutrition has to offer, use the link in the description or visit GoAscentNutrition.com and use coupon code FKN to get 10% off your entire purchase. back to Forbidden Knowledge News. I'm your host, Chris Matthew. Today my guest is Carrie Ann Flanagan-Broski. First, I have a couple of announcements. Forbidden Knowledge News is always available on Rockfin, Odyssey, Rumble, and all podcast platforms. Check us out on Rockfin. That's where you get our premium content, as well as all the premium content from every creator on Rockfin. You can also create a free account and get tons of free content. You go to rockfin.com slash FKN plus to sign up. Our website is ForbiddenKnowledge.news. That's also the home of the Forbidden Knowledge Network. You're going to find awesome podcasts from our community there. And check out our friends at C60 Purple Power. C60 may be the most powerful antioxidant known to man. The benefits have been personally incredible. But check them out for yourself. You click the link in the description. You get 10% off your order plus free shipping. Finally, if you would like to help in any way with the Forbidden Documentary, anything is greatly appreciated, and we can't do it without your help. The price of gas is incredibly ridiculous and rising. You can go to supportfkn.com or use the PayPal link in the description if you would like to help in any way. Like I said, anything is greatly appreciated. And if you donate through supportfkn.com, you're going to get access to tons of information going into Corey Hughes' new book about the JFK assassination. You're really going to want to check that out. Today, I want to welcome Carrie Ann Flanagan-Broski. 
She is an award-winning author of nine books, historian, and has been featured in numerous publications. She served on the Board of Trustees as first vice president for the Huntington Historical Society for six years, and she served as a trustee for the Green Lawn Centerport Historical Association for three years. She is also president emeritus of the Long Island Authors Group and is a well-known speaker. Carrie Ann, welcome. How you doing? Good. Thank you for having me, Chris. Yeah, it's great to have you on. Uh, there is so much we can discuss. I love that as a historian, you bring these what some consider fringe topics and paranormal events to light that you would most likely not hear about unless, you know, wonderful researchers like yourself are looking into it. And that we're finding so much about our history actually is is either been manipulated or outright false, especially in the past few years with the age of information and everything that's been coming out lately and people looking into our true history. So it's it's very important what you're doing, especially during these times. And there's a sort of uh, spiritual and paranormal kind of revision that's also happening, the global consciousness, which I find fascinating as well. So there's so many uh, directions we could go with this. Uh, I love the work you're doing, but this is your first time on. Tell us more about yourself, uh, your background, and what led you to write about these topics. Sure. It's, it's a very, I've had a very interesting uh, career. My degree is actually in photography. I went to school for photojournalism and uh, I worked for Newsday at the time in New York. And from there, I started working at some local newspapers and uh, parts of Long Island are very historic. And I live in Huntington and that's where the newspaper was. It was founded by Walt Whitman. And I started uh, taking an interest in the history of the town. I ended up writing my own column of which I was photographing places of historical interests uh, in the hopes of preserving them. And I was having, um, you know, these different articles written and people loved it. They were learning about local history and they could drive by the places or some of them were open to the public. That led me to write two books in 1995 and 1997 on um, Huntington, which is a, it's a large town. So I did all the towns within the town of Huntington. And I was doing, um, you know, putting them into a book and I was lecturing. I then became uh, involved with the Huntington Historical Society, where I was first vice president for six years. And I, I would mention I was doing all these lectures. And eventually the Historical Society said to me, it was getting to be, you know, a couple of months before Halloween, and we have this historical born. And they said, you know, some of your stories actually have a ghost or two in there. Would you be able to maybe put a lecture together um, with some of those stories? Now, when you're researching older homes and things, there always seems to be a ghost story associated with it. And so in those books, I think each of them had about 20 stories each. So I took out, I think maybe five of them were ghost related. And uh, I set up this whole thing in uh, the Conklin barn. My husband helped me. We webbed it and we had all this fun stuff going on. And I was shocked at the time because the barn holds about 50 people. We had about 80 to 100 people trying to get in to see this lecture. And I said, oh, my gosh, I can't believe all these people are interested in ghosts. Um, so the lecture took off and I started doing it for many years. And it was always a sellout crowd. And what people liked about it is that they were learning local history and what better way 
than through a ghost story. So people had said to me, you know, why don't you write a book just about ghosts? And I put it on the back burner for a little while. I wanted to be taken serious as an author, as a journalist, and as a historian. I didn't want to be considered a ghostbuster, so to speak. And as time went on, though, um, I, my father was battling multiple sclerosis, which actually led me to write another book down the road, which we'll talk about later. But before that, um, after his death, I really needed to uh, get involved in another book project. The, the grief was very bad for me. And my husband said, you know what? Some time has gone on. Uh, there are shows, different paranormal shows and things like Medium was on TV. He said, why don't you write that ghost book? And I said, you know, maybe I will. And I'll do it from a historical slant. But I needed someone to help work with me on the paranormal end of things. And as luck would have it, I think it was 2005, um, in walked Joe Giaquinto, who happened to be a medium and a paranormal investigator. He came to my lecture that year in Huntington, and I asked him right on the spot if he would help me on a book project um, you know, of this nature. And I started writing Ghosts of Long Island, Stories of the Paranormal. And uh, since then, I've written a total of nine books. Four of them are ghost-related. Um, my latest one is Haunted Long Island Mysteries. And um, they've really evolved over the years. And it's amazing to me. Uh, we've investigated well over 100 places, presumably haunted on the island. And um, it's amazing the interest that people have had. And uh, the books have really evolved. Now, what was your uh, interest in the paranormal before you actually started writing? Were you interested in it? Did, had you done any research? Had you had any paranormal experiences? How did you feel about it be, you know, before you started writing about it? I actually was very interested in it. Uh, when I was a child, I remember hearing a family ghost story that my parents had about uh, their first attic apartment um, that was in Valley Stream, and um, which is on Long Island. And I remember hearing about the story and the, uh, the house itself was actually owned by my um, aunt's family. So it was my aunt and uncle weren't married yet. And it was, they had rented this attic apartment to uh, my parents. And um, there was a ghost there and it was the ghost of uh, one of their relatives, an Italian um, grandfather. And so I can't remember, I think it was, uh, I don't know if it was the second ghost book or it was in one of them but I ended one of the chapters um, called calling it the ghost of the Italian grandfather. So that had piqued my interest. Um, so I had done a lot of research on my own prior to doing the books. And I also am a very spiritual person. So I've had a lot of religious experiences as well. And so it just sort of uh, evolved. Of course, since writing the books, I've had um, more experiences and um, one of the biggest things I wanted to show was that Long Island is more than the Amityville horror and that it's a place rich in history, especially with our Native American past, the Revolutionary War, and it's also very spiritual. So um, it's sort of all tied into things that I liked and that I believed in um, prior to writing the books. Has your, um, has your understanding of the paranormal in general and what is behind it and its connections to us and the afterlife and, and other unexplained phenomena, has this evolved any and changed since you started writing books? It actually has. And I'd like to say that I'd I, I like to, you know, people to, to know that I have been really uh, trying to show that life does exist 
beyond this one and that our lives are very spiritual. Um, it, it's really amazing because in my first book, Ghosts of Wineland, um, I had included a couple of places that people uh, in other parts of the country would probably have heard of, such as the Ammon of O'Hara, Kings Park Psychiatric Center, Mary's Grave. Those are more legends and myths. Um, so I had included them because it was my first ghost book. And if someone came from out of state, they'd say, well, where are these things, right? But as time went on, I realized that there was so much more. So again, with the concentration on the Revolutionary War, um, my partner Joe and I have been able to actually connect with those on the other side um, during our investigations. So in the early days, uh, we did use very minimal equipment. For me, since I'm a professional photographer, I would use uh, two cameras. I have a professional Nikon D80. Um, and then I also have a Nikon Coolpix, which I call my orb camera. And we could talk about that, you know, a little bit later. But, um, and then Joe was evolving in his mediumship. So that was actually just forming. And we were using recorders to get white noise EVPs. But as the books have evolved and Joe has evolved with his mediumship, um, I don't consider myself a medium, but I have been able to communicate with certain higher up energies, um, which has been really amazing uh, for me to be able to do that. But uh, since we've been doing this, we've been uh, using what's called a ghost box. And it's a type of EVP where you get live time uh, recordings. And we have this on the website. So people, you know, who are listening today can go on to uh, ghostoflongisland.com and listen to these EVPs. And um, what I've really tried to do, especially when I lecture, is um, to try to get people not to be afraid. You know, Hollywood makes everything out to be demonic, negative energy, um, scary, frightening, they can hurt you. And I have to say, we have not encountered this. Everything that we have done is, has been extremely positive. Um, again, more on the spiritual level as we've increased, even with people who have died in recent years. Um, some incredible stories there. But when I lecture, I explain the difference, first of all, between a ghost and a, and a uh, spirit. So a ghost would be someone that is more place-centered, meaning for reasons unknown, they choose not to cross over to the other side. Uh, one of our best examples of this on Long Island, we have this great restaurant called the Country House Restaurant, and it dates back to the 1700s and the Revolutionary War, and um, a young girl was brutally murdered in the house. And um, so she stays there to this day. And it's been very, very well documented, not only by myself, but by regular people who have gotten photographs of her or have experienced things there. So that would be more of a ghost. Now, a spirit, on the other hand, we also encounter and spirits are people that are with us. They could be your parents, grandparents, children, aunts, uncles, people basically who have crossed to the other side. And it used to be the old belief that if you happen to see an apparition of your grandmother in, in the house, oh my God, quick, get the priest, grandma didn't make it to heaven. Now, I was born and raised Catholic, that's my belief um, that we go to heaven, but whatever your belief is, if a person was good in this lifetime, then of course they are where they're supposed to be in the afterlife. And the two worlds aren't really that far apart anymore. You know, I, I know as a child, for me, 
we always believed that heaven was way up in the sky and hell was down below and we were sort of in the middle. But now we've seen that we're able to cross the veil a little bit and that our loved ones are with us all of the time, even though we cannot see them. And there are ways that they can communicate with us if we're open to it. And it's very spiritual. So it doesn't mean that they're here haunting or not where they're supposed to be, but they're around us. And um, it, it's incredible because I've told people um, about these things when I had uh, my children when they were younger, you know, how they always have at the end of the year, the kids go up on the stage and they're singing songs and whatnot. And we were in the basement of a church and uh, my mother-in-law was with me and I was telling her about orbs and we had gotten, she had, she had taken a picture with her own camera and there were tons of orbs over the stage, over the children's heads. And she said, Oh my God, I can't believe this. What's happening. And I said, well, you're fortunate to be here, but there are a lot of grandparents or relatives that can't be here. So it's uh, very positive because it's a way of showing that um, there is another connection uh, that people have passed, but they're still with us. So that's sort of the difference between the ghosts and the spirits. I've also taught uh, the 10 different types of ghosts, which is um, a list that was put together by Peter Underwood, who is a very famous paranormal investigator uh, from London, England. He has since passed away, but I'm in touch with his grandson, who is keeping his, his legend alive. He was very, very big. And he actually had put a list together of the 10 different types of ghosts because you can't really say that a ghost is any one particular thing. There are modern ghosts, there are animal ghosts, ghosts of inanimate objects, traditional historical ghosts. So um, Joe and I have tried to work within that list and we see how our own work fits in. And so not only are we connecting with people from history, these historical figures, but we have uh, done some private homes and things of that nature where we have connected with people who have passed and we've actually helped bring their families back together and get them out of grief. So it's been, um, it's been very powerful doing it. And I, I've enjoyed seeing it evolve into this, um, promoting the history and promoting that life does exist on the other side and that our loved ones are with us. Right on. Now, you mentioned that, you know, 10 different kinds of ghosts. This is very interesting to me because at first I believe that there's a crossover in lots of different types of phenomenon, even from ufology to the paranormal. And it can uh, obviously be difficult in pinning any one thing uh, when it could be uh, a variety of different phenomena crossovers. Yes. Uh, so with these 10 different types of ghosts, I know as well as that, they have different types of hauntings, residual hauntings, mm -hmm. energetic, intelligent hauntings. Uh, poltergeists and you know some would consider lower vibrational entities trickster entities there's all kinds of things yes. that I think has to be uh, taken into consideration but maybe you could tell us a little bit more about these uh, 10 different kinds of ghosts okay um, I mean that's a great question too uh, the traditional type of ghosts are historical figures so that's as I had mentioned Annette Williamson at the country house restaurant is a good example of that Gettysburg, that's a good example of that. But then we have times where it is just energy that is um, left over in the environment that causes a uh, phenomenon. There's something called a cyclical or recurring ghost. And every year, and this has been recorded, um, hundreds of people have seen the funeral train of President Abraham Lincoln going across the plains. 
And so is this an actual haunted train that people are seeing? No. For some reason, there is energy that has been trapped uh, in the environment and that causes this phenomenon to occur each year. Okay, so that's more of a cyclical a recurring ghost. Uh, modern ghosts are, are interesting, and there's actually uh, two, two different types. You may have heard, um, and this is very common, uh, let's say uh, a wife or a mother is at home sleeping in the United States, and she has a son or a husband away at war. And that person, let's say, died tragically during that war. There are so many people who have been visited by that person before they went to the other side because they weren't able to say goodbye. So they'll see sometimes a vision uh, when they're sleeping and they'll wake up, but and then all of a sudden the phone will ring, someone will come to the door and say that their loved one had passed. So that's a type of a modern ghost. Another one similar to the uh, cyclical ghost or the recurring ghost, uh, this, this is not a story from Long Island, but this is a story that I just heard from my, my research that I've done about a man who every day, you know, would come home from work at the same time, pull into his driveway, and he would see an older gentleman walking his dog. And they would always say hello and chit-chat and that type of thing. Well, one day the man comes home from work and he sees the guy walking his dog again. He says hello, but this time the guy just keeps walking and, and look, look different to him, Okay. So he went upstairs and he told his wife, he said, oh, I just had a strange thing. You know, I was talking to so-and-so or I tried to talk to him and he wasn't responding. And the wife went white and said, I was going to tell you tonight that he had passed away this morning. So that man, it wasn't that he physically was still here, but his energy was strong and it was showing again his routine so things like that only will last usually for a couple of days. Um, sometimes it could be a couple of weeks. Uh, the same thing with uh, pets, okay? Pets do uh, go to the other side. They are with us on our journey. Pets are very intu intuitive, especially dogs, cats, and horses. And they too can come back like a person to be with us. A lot of people have claimed that if they slept with dogs their whole life, that there are times that they actually can feel the uh, feeling of that dog going in a circle to lay down on the bed. Um, ghosts of inanimate objects is an interesting thing. And this is something that Joe talks a lot about at our lectures, because again, we're trying to undo what Hollywood has portrayed inanimate objects to be um, as far as hauntings are concerned. They don't come alive. Okay. The Chucky doll and all of that we see on TV, <clears throat> but a doll can't come alive and kill you. What happens is it's energy transference. And um, if you have a little girl that had a doll that was given to her as a baby and that doll was in the room, and as the girl got older, she hugged the doll. She was sick and held the doll when she was upset, always with the doll. And then one day she's 16, she doesn't want the doll, maybe it goes to goodwill. And people claim that the doll is haunted because it looks like the eyes are moving or the hand is moving. And again, the doll is not alive. It's not that the doll is haunted, but it has uh, sometimes created a phenomenon where the energy was so strong that it was transferred onto this object uh, for a certain amount of time period. Um, so, you know, we like to try to undo uh, that whole thing. Poltergeists are another one that you had mentioned, Chris, but out of the 10 types of ghosts, I would say it's the least likely one that you would experience. 
Uh, thankfully, I've never experienced it. Uh, Joe did in a place that he lived in upstate very, very briefly. This is before I met him. And um, he moved out of there because of poltergeist experiences. Um, but it is rare. Even seeing apparitions are very rare. Uh, the chance of seeing it are, are very slim. And um, again, we try to undo everything that um, Hollywood has portrayed. And we try to show that it's not that scary. Even down with the EVPs, uh, people say, oh, my gosh, aren't you afraid to hear that? But when you break it down, you're really talking to people. That's what they are. And Joe says it could be someone's grandfather that we're talking with. Um, they were regular people on the earth. And I think that's what makes the work that we do uh, so popular with people because we ourselves are regular people and we treat them with respect, like who they are, people who have crossed. Um, we're not jumping out of vans in the middle of the night and demanding them to perform or show themselves to us. If they are willing and want to communicate, then fine. If they don't, then that's fine too. So nine out of 10 times, we really do uh, get really good correspondence with them because of the fact that we treat them like what they are, which are people. Right. And earlier you, you mentioned demons, and I think you're absolutely right. This is another one of those things that's kind of misunderstood, and people automatically yell that they're being uh, attacked by a demon when it's, you know, most likely something else they don't understand. Um, do you Have you ever encountered anything that maybe not necessarily demonic, but more of a trickster in nature, m maybe trying to get you to think it's demonic or something more nefarious when it's maybe just a trapped uh, human spirit? that may have a little bit of resentment or something? As far as my work, and again, we've, I've been doing this uh, for a long time now and um, over 100 places that we've investigated. I've never experienced that. I've never had a negative experience in regard to doing it in, within my work. However, um, I am a very religious person as a Catholic, and I have... Uh, done other work that is very religious, um, having to do with Padre Pio, the saint who bore the stigmata. And he had some encounters with uh, the devil. And unfortunately, um, there have been times that uh, I have encountered it myself, but unrelated to the work I do, which is, which is interesting. But, you know, the devil is real. And uh, the only thing I could say if people are struggling with something like that, um, if you're firm in your faith and, um, you know, you're, you're protected. So I never have been in a situation where I feel like uh, I'm not protected um, because I, I have my beliefs and my, you know, in, in my love of Jesus Christ. But yeah, it does exist and people have to be aware of it. Um, it this is not something to joke around about. Uh, we don't use things like Ouija boards. You can open certain portals uh, to negative uh, energies and things of that nature. So as far as doing the work, uh, we are very careful and what we open, how we close, uh, what we let in. And, um, you know, you have to be safe about it because there is evil out there, obviously. And we pick and choose. I mean, if someone came to us and said, oh, there's this house that, you know, 50 people were brutally murdered and devil worshipers. Could you come and investigate it? I'd be like, no, <laughs> you know, that's not going to happen. Um, so we're just very careful. And again, because I'm firm in my faith, I know that I'm, I'm protected. 
Now, you, you said that you mentioned that the devil is real. Um, and for me, this is another one of those things that's uh, very highly misunderstood, misunderstood. I mean, the devil first came along as a tarot card and was seen as something nefarious since that. But I do, I do agree that there are negative entities out there. I'd like to get what your understanding of what you're saying the devil is. Um, it's just the opposite of God. You know, it's something that's hatred. Um, I think the world, unfortunately, has a lot of that uh, in it today, which is very sad. Um, and I think that a lot of times that negative uh, energy or that devil, if you want to call him, call it that, um, will try to put down people that are um, very religious in nature because they are threatened by it. Um, you know, I've put out some other very powerful work um, that has helped a lot of people get back to their faith. And uh, to be honest, the devil doesn't like that. So, you know, sometimes things happen. You could just sense it, you know, not anything that's, again, extreme, like that you would see in the movies. But you just know, you just know. And, uh, you know, you just have to be aware of what, what is happening and, you know, just get rid of it. Mm hmm uh, I was talking about some interesting observations about uh, paranormal hotspots and hauntings and different locations that have activity with a few colleagues in the past couple of months. And it's interesting that, you know, when you're in an area that may have a more populated area, maybe more electronics, maybe more frequencies around it, you don't tend to see as much activity, but you go to more rural areas, um, you know, places out in the country, or uh, homes that may not have as much electro electromagnetic interference with it, you know, a lot of um, cell phone electronics, computers, things like that around the area. Some of those tend to have more activity than places that are saturated with some of these modern frequencies. Uh, is that something that you've kind of looked into and encountered as well? And do you think that there is something to modern technology maybe kind of blocking or interfering with these energies uh, or this spectrum that we can't identify? I think that's a really good uh, point that you brought up. It's something that I never really considered in that way. But looking back on the work I've done, um, Long Island is an interesting place. It's sort of divided into like the North Shore, the South Shore, and then you have the North Fork and the South Fork. And people, you know, consider that area of the Hamptons and that kind of thing. And what I have noticed, um, I live in Suffolk County, and which is more Eastern on Long Island. Western part of Long Island, which is Nassau County, is very built up, more so than Suffolk County. Suffolk County is too. But I do notice because people say, oh, well, how come you haven't investigated anything in my town? The places that have a lot of buildings, office buildings, knock down all the historical homes, uh, you know, lots of malls, that kind of thing. It's true. You don't really find as much, at least I haven't. Okay. So on the North Shore of Long Island, um, we have saved a lot of our history. And that tends to be the hotter areas for the work that I do, is those areas where we have preserved the history, where there are more woods and that type of thing. The South Shore is a little bit newer. So again, we don't have as much history 
Uh, we, we do have some history, I shouldn't say that, but it's not as much as what you would sometimes see on the North Shore or the North Fork or South Fork. So that definitely is an interesting point. And the other thing I do feel that um, things like the natural environment, you can get more from it because it's, it's almost like it's porous. It's like a sponge for this type of activity. It's, it's interesting. There's another woman that uh, travels in the same circles as me, Monica Randall, and um, she has written many books on the Gold Coast estates and, and relates them to hauntings as well. I believe she had gone to Europe and uh, went to all these different castles and things and worked with some kind of a machine or a mechanism that actually was able to pick up voices, okay, in old English from these castles. Now, of course, when we watch TV, we always are like, oh, you know, all these castles in Ireland and England, they're all haunted. But when you think about what they're made of, Chris, like you were saying, you know, stone, wood, and again, this energy gets trapped. It's not that these people are still stuck in there. Sometimes maybe they are, we might have a traditional ghost or two in there. But a lot of times, if you hear voices and things, they're bouncing off the material, the stone, or the, um, you know, the the wood or whatever is in that. So it, it really is fascinating. Joe and I spent a lot of time in Strong's Neck on the island, which is a very small town on the, on the North Shore. And it's where the culprit spying really was headquartered, okay, with General George Washington's uh, spying during the Revolutionary War. And it's um, made up of private homes, horse farms, that type of thing, and a lot of woods. And we spent a lot of time for various chapters in the books going through these woods with another historian, Margot Arceri. And the phenomenon that we had in the woods was amazing. We actually had gotten a white noise EVP of cannon fire. Okay, that went back to the Revolutionary War. And we weren't even looking for it. Joe happened to have his recorder on. We're walking through the woods. And all of a sudden, we hear this. And um, it was incredible. And he ended up getting it on the recorder. So when you're in those types of environments, I, I agree definitely. There are more ways, uh, there are more openings where when we have all these other electronic things, it's more difficult. And I think sometimes that's why on these shows, Maybe they don't get as much because they're using too many electronics. Um, you know, we, we try to use the least amount of equipment as we possibly can. And but then on the other side of, of the coin of that, it's interesting because of technology, um, technology is all energy based. So the spirits are able to manipulate some of that energy in things like recorders and cameras in order to communicate. So it's just bringing up their um, frequency along with what we provide, and then they're able to, to use that. So it sort of works in both ways. But when we do our investigations, we would like, we usually like to keep it limited to just the two of us and whoever are, who's, whoever is involved in the place that we're at, if it's an owner or, or a manager of a place, uh, because even people's energies, too many people can create some havoc when you're trying to pick up energy from the other side. So it's a very interesting point that you brought up, but yes. So I, I would have to say, I agree with that. 
Yeah, and you're right. It does work both ways. You have reports of uh, the batteries being drained on certain electronics mm-hmm. and it affecting, yes. um, like you said, EVPs and affecting different types of technology in different ways. So, yeah, you're, uh, you're spot on that. And it's very fascinating how it can either uh, affect or, uh, you know, prevent us from, from – accessing certain things beyond the spectrum of our vision. Mm -hmm. Very interesting. Uh, Now, I want to know about Joe and what he does during your investigations. Could you kind of take us through a typical investigation and what Joe is doing? Yes, definitely. Uh, We have a lot of fun. I love reading Nancy Drew as a child, so I kind of think of us cross between Nancy Drew and Hardy Boys and the X-Files. What Joe does is very specific to, um, since most of the places are of historic in nature. So what I do is I usually start collecting some information on the place first, and then I'll tell Joe, all right, we got ourselves into such and such place. And I try not to give Joe that much background information on it. Then we usually go to the actual location and we interview the people and a lot of about the history first and everything is recorded. Then our investigations, we will go around, I'll photograph with the two cameras again, the, my Nikon D80 is to uh, put, you know, nice looking images in the book of what the place looked like or what a room looked like. Um, with the smaller camera, the Nikon uh, Coolpix, that I tend to get more orbs with. And people say, well, why is that? Well, the same thing if I was in, with a group of people and had my huge camera with the battery pack and the flash and all that. And I say, here, can you take a picture? People are like, oh, no, no, I don't know how to work this. It's the same thing. If I gave you a cool pics, it would be a lot easier. Just press the button. So the spirits are able to manipulate those cameras, um, you know, easier than they can with uh, the larger camera. So I'm walking around with the camera, but so is Joe. Joe is usually also taking photographs and things have been verified. We've been photographing at the same time. I've gotten an orb and he has the same orb but it's in a different part of the frame because his, he was maybe 20 seconds off from shooting. So he'll take some photographs as well. Um, but then his main thing is the communication that we do with uh, the EVPs. So when we first started out, um, Joe had told me about EVPs and I had never heard of them before. And uh, I looked at him and I thought that he was insane. And I said, well, what do you mean You know, I might pick up? Because he had asked me, he said, well, you're going to be interviewing people what are you, are you using a recorder? And I said, yeah, I have this little one from Radio Shack Digital. He said, well, you might get the voices of people from the other side. So I wasn't really sure if I believed it, even though I was open to things. So on our very first interview um, that we were doing, we were interviewing a couple who had lived in a house that had um, some paranormal activity due to objects that had come from foreign countries that had negative energy attached to it. And um, so the house that we were in, that we were in had never had they had never had any experience in there, so we were having a nor'easter at the time. Joe had lived in Hampton Bays, and it was maybe fifteen minutes from my house, so it was easy for me to get there. So Joe was going to be late, and I said, "Don't worry about it. this." Was our very first assignment, and um, I said, "I'll conduct the interview." So I had my recorder in on a big uh, coffee table. It was a fairly large living room and there was two love seats. So the couple was sitting on one. I was sitting on another table in the center and I had my recorder and went through the whole interview and Joe was not there yet. 
I finished the interview and he arrived. And um, when I played back the recorder, because I have to transcribe everything in order to get it uh, perfect, I then handwrite. All of a sudden, it was as if uh, someone had picked up the recorder. Okay, you know the difference if you were playing back from about how far a person was sitting, if they were maybe three feet away or really far away, or if someone was holding it to their mouth like this. It was as if a little girl had picked up the recorder and in a loud whisper said, hold me. I almost fell off my chair and I played it for my husband. He was scared out of his mind. And then when I played it for Joe, he said, congratulations, you got your first class A EVP because there are the three classes, depending on how audible they are. So it was at that point that I knew that this existed. So even though it's Joe's specialty, I I like to pride myself in getting some good white noise EVPs over the years. But that's what he does. He works with special software, the Gold Wave, and he's able to find these EVPs and recordings. So what he does is very tedious looking for that. Now, those are the white noise EVPs, okay? You, You can't hear them live time. It would be playing back from the recording. So with the last two ghost book projects, um, it evolved into Joe getting a ghost box, which is basically a transistor radio uh, where one of the wires has been manipulated or cut so that it continuously scans. So um, Joe has gotten some amazing things. And so what we'll do, we'll, we'll go around, we'll take photographs first. We'll have the recorders on looking for white noise EVPs during our invest- during our interview process with the owner of the house or the property. And then we will do a ghost box recording session where we ask questions. And usually we do include the homeowner um, and they're just or the property owner. And they're amazed at the answers we get. From there, Joe will then um, again use his software to make sure that people can really hear them and bring them out. And he doesn't manipulate them though. You know, he just makes them, you know, takes away any excess stuff on the sides. And we play them for our audiences. We played them on uh, webinars. And uh, they are, like I said, on the, um, on our websites. And what's interesting about the books is that they're interactive. So you could read along, see the transcript in the book, and then listen to them um, as you go along. And so he spends a lot of time working on these EVPs. He also will just use his phone and take video and we've gotten uh, orbs in motion through that. And since he hasn't evolved in his mediumship, he uses his mediumship. to which works to our advantage because he could sort of sense if someone's there ahead of time. And, um, and that's, what's interesting because I give him limited information. And when we do the interviewing, we're not talking about the paranormal end of things yet, just the historical things. And he's been able to pull up stuff that um, we find out later had, had happened or was true or that the property owner had experienced so it really is uh, remarkable. There was this one restaurant that we were at um, many years ago, and I was walking around. The only other thing that I would use is an electromagnetic field indicator or, um, you know, ghost meter. And that basically just will pick up energy. You have to rule things out. If you hold it up to a socket, as I'm sure you know, you know, it'll start beeping. So I was going around this restaurant um, without Joe. Okay. He was staying in the bar area and, uh, wasn't picking up anything. It's fine. You know, I was photographing, wasn't getting anything. Um, As I started walking back to the bar, 
I was holding the ghost meter and the ghost meter started beeping and beep, beep, beep. And so as I got closer to the uh, actual bar where the stools were, it was beeping faster. So we ruled out that there was anything electrical that could be picking up. And so Joe said, give me a minute. Let me see if I could communicate. Sure enough, he said, I believe that there's a man here who used to sit at the end of this uh, bar stool and that died. He, he's more of a modern ghost that he died just a couple of years ago. He said, let's see, uh, let's get the recorders on. And we actually did um, a ghost box recording session. And uh, it was true. It was a man that had frequented there. And it was funny because the restaurant was closed when we did this, but there was a young woman, the bartender who was getting the bar prepped for the day. And she, <laughs> here we are acting as if this is totally normal. And when Joe said, what do you think of, uh, I forget what her name was, Tracy, the bartender, and, and through the ghost boxes is hot stuff. I thought the girl was going to pass out. You know, it, it was hilarious um, because she had just never heard this and we're so accustomed to hearing it. So he uses his mediumship along with um, these tools of the recorder and the ghost box. And like I said, our cameras and um, the electromagnetic field indicator, that's really it. And from that point, when we leave, he goes into, you know, his lab and, and puts transcripts together for me that we use in the book um, and gets everything up and running so people could hear them. And then I start doing even more research. Uh, you know, it's, the research is really my biggest thing for me um, because I want everything to be as accurate as possible as far as um, the historical end of things. And then um, how I write the stories, even though the books are nonfiction, it's almost like it's a work of fiction because we, I take the reader on the actual journey of what it's like for Joe and I to do these investigations. So it's back and forth conversation, things in quotes. You have the transcript. You could listen to it. And, um, you know, people have really enjoyed it, really enjoyed it a lot. So he's been my right-hand person for all these projects. Right on. Uh, now, as far as the orbs go, I am on the fence with a lot of orbs that I've seen, although I've seen plenty that I consider to be authentic or real energy or whatever it's manifesting as, uh, although lots of times people will present it and it's just, you know, dust. Are these orbs that you're uh, catching, can you see these with your with your naked eye? And um, what what are the indicators that this is, you know, more than something like dust? Right. Okay. Um, well, the one good thing is that because my degree is actually in photography, I definitely know the difference between a dust particle and an orb. And people will say, um, you know, skeptics will say it's a dust particle. Now, here's the difference. A dust particle will stay in the same place in every frame as you continually use that camera unless you clean the lens. Okay. Usually, it is not um, uh, translucent. Okay, you can't see through it. So it is a speck that stays there that you cannot see through it. And orb is different because orbs, we are starting to believe that they are spirits. And this is the way that they're using the cameras, especially the flash, that it triggers their energy and that they can form these light anomalies. But just like a person, each one is different. I spent a number of years just studying orbs and I have boxes and boxes of photographs of them. And when you blow them up, each one is different. They can be uh, speckled, multicolored. They could have rings in them. They could have an extra ring around them, sort of like a light. They could be mul a multitude of colors, either from you know one having 
10 colors to one being just green or just red or, or just pure white. Uh, usually they are um, translucent, so you can see through them, except for the really bright ones. And as I mentioned, Joe and I will photograph back to back. We were in uh, the Brewster House in Setauket, which is again right outside of Strong's Neck, very heavy on Revolutionary War. And I knew that in the attic of there, that there were a lot of people, a lot of energy. Joe could feel it. We started photographing and we weren't getting anything. So I said, basically out loud to the spirits, I said, look, I said, we're doing this for educational purposes. And we know that this was a very active area up here. It would really be beneficial to us to, to teach about this house and the history behind it. If you can present yourselves in an orb. Within 10 seconds, um, all of a sudden, the room was lighting up. Uh, we couldn't see them with our own eyes, but as we were photographing them with digital cameras, we could see them. And there are so many. I mean, I have so many uh, images of orbs in the books. It's just incredible. And um, I guess that lasted probably about 10 to 15 seconds, and then boom, nothing at all. And they're all different sizes. Now, uh, I mentioned, you know, earlier about my father passing and, and how close I was with him. I have gotten the same orb when I blow it up. It's exactly the same whether I am in New York, Florida, North Carolina. And it's amazing. And I tell people, I said, take it as a good thing. And, and people don't even realize they get them. I've seen them in newspapers. If, if there's a car accident and they're taking a picture at night. I'm like, oh, look, there's the guy who just died. He's going up. So um, people don't even realize they get them. I point them out. I say, all right, well, let's start with your, and I did this with my mother-in-law. Let's start off with a family, um, you know, Christmas time, let's say. Now, if Uncle Harry was the, the life of the party for years and years, and he never missed anything, chances are when Uncle Harry passed, he's going to come back. And when I started going through images with my own family members for family events, they were shocked at what they found um, on the walls, on ceilings. I'm like, that's Uncle Harry, you know, whoever it may be. And it should be reassuring to people because, again, they are where they're supposed to be, but they want us to know that they're here. Um, one time, this was not an investigation. I was photographing my sister-in-law. Uh, we were celebrating something and we were out in a public place and on the window behind her was an orb. When I blew it up, there was a distinct face of a dog in it. And I said, well, someone's dog was here visiting. Uh, going back to the country house, this is really fascinating. Um, I told you it's haunted by the ghost of Annette Williamson. Many people have seen her, the owner, customers, everything. She was a young 17-year-old, curly, long, blonde hair. And there was an artist who was driving uh, one morning very early, like it was like sunrise, past the country house. And she actually saw an apparition of Annette hovering over the house with the long, blonde hair and like a wreath of flowers around her head. She made a painting of it, which hangs in the country house today of what she saw. And it's, uh, you know, people can see it. It's a beautiful painting. When Joe and I did our first investigation there, and we did many things. We did film the documentary there. Um, 
and we had gotten the orbs. When Joe blew up his image of the orb, it looked exactly like the image that was painted by the woman. You can see a girl with curly blonde hair and the wreath of flowers around her head. So it really um, is remarkable. And they're more common than, let's say, an apparition to get. Uh, we generally get orbs. Um, we get, on occasion, I've gotten apparitions, not that I've seen it, but I've seen it later in the image. And we've gotten some sort of ectoplasmy kind of thing uh, at times too. So those would be the three things. But the orbs um, are our major thing that we get. And I have multiple really good pictures of them in the book. Awesome. Um, I'd like you to tell us now uh, about some of your favorite places in Long Island that you've investigated uh, and maybe some of the, the most profound experiences you've had while doing it. Mm-hmm. Um, the Revolutionary War places are really some of my favorite. Uh, I mentioned Country House many times because that is one of my favorites. Uh, not only is it a great restaurant, but it's just jam-packed with history. And it's probably the most, uh, I don't like to use the word, haunted uh, per se, even though that always helps to sell books. But, you know, haunting is, is, again, a movie thing. It's probably the most active place on Long Island. Um, I had mentioned to you about the North Shore. So most of my favorites are probably on the North Shore of Long Island. Uh, there's another one, Deepwell's uh, Mansion, that's haunted by a previous mayor of New York City. And um, down the street from there is the St. James General Store where a little girl had died falling down the stairs. Um, she's been heard and seen uh, by people. And Strong's Neck, like I said, anything to do with the culprit spiring has been really amazing. One of my favorites, though, uh, we had in the 1800s a genre painter named William Sidney Mount. And um, he was a very famous painter here. He traveled about uh, the Setauket, Strong's Neck area. And while he was alive, he believed in mediumship. So he lived, his house was down the road about a half a mile from what is today the country house. Now at the time it was the Hathaway house and they would have seances there. And oftentimes he would say that he communicated with Rembrandt, that Rembrandt was like his spirit guide. And um, he would actually get tips from Rembrandt about how to achieve certain qualities of light and color with the paintbrush. So um, towards the end of his life, William Sidney Mount had one bad experience with uh, a medium. It's like anything else, like people say to me, you know, you're not going to call 1-800-PSYCHIC. You have to go to someone reputable. The same thing as if you were going to a doctor or a lawyer or you, you go to someone that is reputable that you know is, is the real deal. So, but anyway, he, William Sidney Mount had uh, not that great experience and he all of a sudden had doubt about, and he grew up during a time, you know, he was in his 30s during when spiritualism was on the rise. And, um, and then he ended up getting sick and he died. And uh, he wrote tons and tons of journals, which I had access to. So while I was working on that story in my office, um, I had gotten the sense, and this is when I started to develop some things, that he was in the office with me and that he was sort of like a close talker, like right in my face. And I couldn't write 
the chapter, I was writing a chapter about his, his life and some experiences that we had had. Um, and I thought I was losing my mind and I, I was getting the sense from him that he, he felt that he was wrong. He wanted people to know that mediumship really does exist, that you can communicate and that what happened to him during those last months of his life, he regretted ever writing in the journal and he wanted me to fix it now. So I call up Joe and I said, look, either I'm completely losing my mind or I have William Sidney Mount in my office. And this is what he's saying to me. Uh, and Joe said, you want me to see if I could communicate with him? And I said, okay, see what you could do. So we hang up the phone a little while later, I get an email from Joe. He said, this is what he said. Now, Joe had no access to his journals at this point. So he did not know his language or his writing style. Um, the email that Joe wrote was exactly written the way the journals were. So I knew that he had communicated with him and William Sidney Mount said that he apologized. He's excited that I'm going to be writing about him and his beliefs. And he knows that I will do a good job uh, with it. From that point on, I sensed him in the office while I was writing the story, but he was maybe 10 feet away. And this was many years ago. Um, we've, I've written a couple of chapters in various books specifically on him and his home, because he is such an amazing communicator. And um, I consider him almost like one of my uh, spirit guides that assist me um, with my work. Um, it's been absolutely remarkable. And uh, we had gone to his house at the time. Um, we did not get access to the inside, only the outside. And there was a, um, like a, a screened in porch that had a, uh, you know, a screen door attached to it. So Joe and I were standing outside um, talking, we were wrapping things up and it was so hot. It was like, I think in July, not any breeze at all. And um, we were talking about William Sydney Mount and all of a sudden the screen door started to open <clears throat> and it opened and was sort of going like this, like hovering. And then it just quietly closed. And we're looking at this, we're like, I don't even believe we're seeing this. So once it closed, I went immediately over to it and I opened it up and I let go and it slammed shut. It was on a heavy spring. There was no way that it could have hovered that way for that length of time, unless someone was opening it. So we started a, um, a ghost box recording session at that point. Two hawks also flew overhead, which was an indication that there was something going on spiritually. And uh, we communicated and have a, had a long EVP session with William Sidney Mount saying, you know, about how he was, had been upset about, you know, the spiritual movement and how there were doubts and things like that. Then another time we got into the house and we weren't there 10 minutes when boards, it was under construction in certain rooms and a board came flying down. And I said to, to Joe, I said, he wants us to know he's here. Um, he, I drove in my car with him in the car one time. I knew beyond a shadow of a doubt. We had just finished the lecture in Stony Brook and we had just found out that we were able to get into his house and, uh, Joe had felt him too. I said, he's sitting right in between us. Um, terrible weather night. He literally saw me home and then was, was vanished. Um, he's been in my office a couple of times. I've not been able to see him, but I have been able to communicate with him. And um, when we had the ghost box recording session and the attic, which was his studio, um, he told Joe that 
Joe had to call him Mr. Mount, but I could call him William. So it's, it's just a joke that we've had. Um, he's a very active communicator. So that's been very fun for me because it's something that I had never expected when I started doing this work. And we had um, some other things like that. There's a, in, in my new book, uh, Haunted Long Island Mysteries, the last chapter of the book is about a young girl, Rebecca Weisbard, that died um, in 2016. She was like almost Olympic level for equestrian. And she died tragically in front of her mother in a horrific riding accident. And um, she's been another one. We had interviewed the parents uh, the stable had had ghostly happenings. Okay. So th there ended up being two chapters for that. Um, it was the story of the stable, the history of that and the things that people have seen, which are remarkable, but then their communication that they've had with their daughter since she has died is just mind blowing. And it was the same thing. Um, when I was, when I first came home after that, uh, it, it takes a lot out of you, like some of the newer stories, because um, I'm a mother. So from listening to, uh, you know, this woman talk about it was her only child, um, it was very difficult to take all that in. And um, also, I used to be an equestrian as well. So we had traveled in a lot of the same circles um, many years ago. And so I could really feel for this. So I, her mother gave me this booklet with all the information about her daughter's awards and the accident. And I was in my office by myself going through it. And I started to get a little teary eyed because I was like, this is just so tragic to me. And next thing you know, I started because um, I have developed some clairsentience where I could sense the spirits. I could feel them from the top of my head on the left hand side. I sensed that she was there. And I was able to hear um, through clairvoyance her saying, don't cry, I'm, I'm fine, I'm good. And uh, so she pops in every once in a while. So again, these are things that I had never anticipated or looked for. So the, the spiritual stories where we're able to make connections like with Williamson, Mount and Rebecca have been very powerful for me as well as the Revolutionary War stories just because they're so fascinating and we're going back and connecting with people who played really important roles in history. So um, it's been just a remarkable journey for, for me. It really has. Yeah, it seems that way. Uh, and earlier you mentioned that there was a lot of um, also Native American history that may have contributed to some of the energy in that area as well. Mm -hmm. Yes, most definitely. Um, that's one thing that people don't always realize with the Amityville horror, because everyone thinks of the, just the DeFeo murders. But what people don't know is that before that house was even built there, that was a very, very active area for Native Americans. And there was makeshift hospitals set up uh, for the Indians. So I always say to people, don't mess with them. They're very spiritual. And um, there's a lot of, uh, a lot that comes with them. Um, Joe and I had the opportunity to interview a chief um, of the Settlecott Indians, Chief Gail Revis. This was for, I guess, the second, the sequel of Ghosts of Long Island. And it was in this, we were originally interviewing her because she knew so much about Strong's Neck. And we met in uh, the Strong's Neck Cemetery. And she was all in her Indian garb. And she had this painted blanket. It was actually like a medicine wheel. And her stories uh, were remarkable that she ended up having her own chapter in, in, the, in that book. 
um, just very, very spiritual, uh, very things with nature. So we've gotten things how you can get uh, spirits through nature. Um, so it's very powerful. And so there's a couple of stories. There's another one about um, Sagt Coast Manor uh, that has a great history, again, going back to the Revolutionary War. But prior to that, there's a story of an Indian princess who actually went out and, and risked her life to save uh, the white settlers that were coming in during a storm. And um, she ended up getting lost at sea. And people have claimed that they have seen the apparition of her wandering around uh, the properties. Another one of my favorite ones, um, which is on the cover of, uh, well, here's, here's Haunted uh, Long Island Mysteries. Um, but this building here, this is Historic Haunts of Long Island. That's the Montauk Manor. And I love this place. We vacation there. It's on the very far, farthest point east on Long Island, past the Hamptons. It's a wonderful family fishing town. The Montauk uh, Manor was built in um, the 20s by a man by the name of Carl Fisher, who had really built up Miami and he wanted Montauk to be the new Miami, but he ended up uh, going broke and that never happened. But the manor was his biggest achievement, um, but he didn't really care too much about history and he built it over a very Indian sensitive area. There's a cemetery called the Fort Hill Cemetery located next door. Um, it's absolutely beautiful up there. It's so peaceful and so sacred. You can feel it. It's not your regular cemetery with tombstones. Everything is below the ground. But there's a section of it that now has a lot of undergrowth and, and all that, um, where this is where the Indians had built their um, camp, the Montauka Indians. And they were a very peaceful tribe and very loving tribe. And um, the Indians from Connecticut and Rhode Island had come, the Pequots and the Narragansetts, and they did a surprise attack and murdered a lot of the, uh, the, the women and children. Uh, same thing happened in Strong's Neck. And I find that those areas are really, really sensitive, especially where Indians have been killed. Very, very sensitive. You could almost feel the change in energy, just a total shift. So I have great respect for our Native Americans and I have really enjoyed including um, some of those stories. We have another one that's more of a legend, although there is some truth to it. Um, the Lady of the Lake in Ronkonkoma. We have this huge lake and um, this is one of more well-known stories, I guess, nationally. Um, that every year um, this Indian princess who lost her, her lover, who was a white settler, who was killed because she wasn't supposed to be with him, um, died. And that every year she takes a white male virgin who would be swimming in the lake. And, you know, we say it's a legend, but there have been multiple cases of this happening. And it's very strange, very, very strange. Um, so we're very respectful with anything that we do, uh, with Native Americans and, um, you know, they have a wonderful history. And if I can get stories that include them, I always will put them in the books. That's great, man. There's so much we could talk about. Um, I'm definitely going to have to have you back home. We're going to discuss more, uh, cause we're barely scratching the surface on a lot of this stuff. Let's close with, um, tell us a little bit about your only novel, the metal, which is actually yes. based on true events, right? Yes, it is. And I have that right here. Um, this is the cover of the metal. Uh, I had mentioned to you earlier that I've had a lot of religious experiences as well. And um, it is based on 
true events. Uh, my father had multiple sclerosis for 16 years. He was diagnosed at age 48. And uh, I came from a very loving, caring family. We were all very close. So it was very traumatic. And I had a... Um, I had issues with my faith. Now I had gone to Catholic school. Um, my parents were religious. My husband was religious. My mother-in-law had worked for the diocese. So, um, you know, we came from a, a good background in that regard. And all of a sudden I started to develop uh, just a lot of anger uh, towards God for, um, I mean, I was young, you know, I was, he was, I was in my early twenties when uh, he was diagnosed so, cause I couldn't understand why God was doing this to my father. That was my belief at the time. And, um, so I had, uh, I had lost my faith and, um, people are put in your lives, uh, for reasons that we can't understand sometimes. And, um, I was approached by an Italian stranger, um, very unlikely character. And, um, he started to tell me about, about Padre Pio who at the time he wasn't a saint yet, but he bore the wounds of Christ, the stigmata. And I mean, there's hundreds of Google pages on Padre Pio. He was a mystic. Um, he had um, the ability to read hearts by location. Um, he was a medium, even though the Catholic church won't use that word, uh, but he had a huge love for Jesus Christ and the blessed mother and he performed miracles. So this Italian person became sort of like my angel and he gave, he taught me about Padre Pio and he gave me um, a medal that had a relic of Padre Pio's on the back. And um, he told me to pray to him. I gave the medal to my father. Um, and there was a whole journey in between a lot of coincidences. I would go to places and all of a sudden find things about Padre Pio there. And the medal is what ultimately brought me back to faith, um, along with this man who was teaching me and bringing me back to my faith. And on the night my father died, um, a miracle took place in regard to the medal. I actually have it on here. Uh, now it's probably hard to hear, see, but this is it. And that's the relic on the back. Um, a miracle took place. I don't want to give away the ending of the book mm, yeah. in regards to this. That was so profound. Um, it changed my life completely. And, um, you know, I was always trying to figure out, trying to figure out why my father had to pass away. Well, I wrote this book and it was a great lear learning curve with it um, because I was a nonfiction writer. Um, I didn't want to write it as a true story because it was too painful for me to relive it that way. So basically, um, the main character, Bethany, is a combination of myself and my mother, um, and what we both dealt with or felt during that uh, time of my father dealing with MS. And in it is um, woven through it is the true story of Padre Pio and his life and the miracles that he has done as told from, from the angel Jimmy in the book. And uh, it was definitely a difficult thing for me to do, a very difficult project. Um, but the letters I have gotten over the past 10 years from people um, it has changed their lives. It has, it has brought people back to their faith. Um, it has given them hope. Um, it has taught them to believe in miracles, to not give up even in the hardest of times. Um, and as an author, I could not ask for anything more that my work um, has actually made such a difference in people's lives. Uh, it is so powerful 
to me. And um, the book is going all over the country right now. Um, and it's just, it, it's so funny. I just received an email last week from someone who was ordering a copy who wants to give it to a friend who's having trouble with their, their son who has uh, an illness. And um, so she was sitting down talking to her hairdresser and the hairdresser has been talking about my book to all these people. And just last week, she had someone in the chair who happened to be a friend of mine <laughs> who knew about the book and who had read it, another author friend. So it's, it's really going around and it's changing people's lives and uh, it makes a big difference. So I see how my work has evolved from, you know, with the whole thing with the ghosts, I had to have that in order to have better understanding of the afterlife. And then it went into the metal and um, it's, it's affecting people and it's, it's helping them and bringing them back to faith. And um, all of these books, by the way, uh, you can get on Amazon, but I also sell them through my website if you want personalized and signed copies. And especially with the metal, a lot of people do that because I write a special message um, in it, believe and have faith. And that's, that's what it's about. Um, so if I could help people through my, through my work, um, you know, it's a wonderful thing. And the only other different project I've also done, I also do a lot of uh, cooking. Um, I was a food writer for Edible Long Island for five years and was a, uh, had my own column called Carrie and Eat. So I did co-author one Italian cookbook with Mr. Sausage in Huntington, which is the place where I had met my angel originally. So everything's all connected uh, yeah. to, to everything. And I also wrote a historic crime book that my publisher had asked me to write, which was scarier to write than the ghost books, uh, believe it or not, because they were all like true, true crimes and things like that. So, you know, I've done, done a mixture. I do webinars on them. I do a lot of, uh, lectures in the fall I'm on book tour every year in, in New York. And um, it's just been a great experience. That's a beautiful thing. Uh, let everybody know where they can find you, uh, your website, if you have social media. I know you said your books are on Amazon, all that good stuff. Yes. So um, they're on Amazon. But like I said, if you want signed copies, I offer free shipping and I get them out in just a day or two. Uh, my website is ghostsoflongisland.com. Um, you can also go under my name, but no one wants to spell out my whole name under Carrie Ann Flanagan Brosky.com. And if you go onto the website, you could also sign up for my newsletter. Um, and you could also scroll down and listen to the EVPs, which will connect you to Joe Giaquinto. Um, I'm also on Facebook under Carrie Ann Flanagan Brosky. I dabble with Twitter. I don't do too much on there, but Facebook and then Instagram. Um, I advertise any upcoming book events, but Instagram is more of my food stuff. So if you want to see where I'm eating or what I'm cooking, you can follow me under the same thing, Carrie Ambrosky or Carrie Planning Ambrosky on Instagram. Um, but, you know, it's it's been a journey and it's, it's something that I love. And it's, you know, I appreciate you giving me the opportunity to be able to discuss these things on your show, Chris. Yes. And thank you for coming on. We're definitely going to have to do it again in the future. This was great. Mm -hmm. Yeah, sounds good. We'll get Joe on next time. He can yeah. play some EVPs. <laughs> yeah, let's, let's do that for sure. Yeah, yeah, All definitely. right. Well, until next time, everyone, have an excellent evening. We're going to be talking again tomorrow, and we'll see you then.